Good morning, everybody. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if this is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he came back, he found them again sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. <clears throat> with him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. <coughs> Then Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who'd come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Good morning. Thank you so much, Sue, for reading that so, so beautifully to us. 
And uh, over the next three weeks, we are going to be focusing our thoughts on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, last Sunday, we took some time to reflect <coughs> upon the, uh, the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And uh, Passover was uh, commemorated, um, <coughs> and, and, and sorry, it commemorated the way that uh, the nation of Israel were freed and delivered from Egypt as slaves many, many hundreds of years before that. And um, we hear of Jesus not only sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, but he actually hijacked that meal. And uh, Jesus used the occasion to introduce another meal of remembrance by taking the, the bread and the wine of the Passover meal and giving them a new significance for his followers. The bread that they ate together was to commemorate Jesus' body, which was soon to be broken for them. And the wine represented the new covenant uh, which was sealed in his blood. And the new meal of remembrance symbolized um, a deliverance far, far greater than the escape from Egypt in the days of Moses. It celebrated a deliverance from death to life and from sin to liberty and from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's light. And this new meal is known today in various ways, but various names, uh, Holy Communion, Eucharist, meaning Thanksgiving, and the Lord's Supper. And Christians, as we know, have celebrated this meal together for the last 2,000 years in remembrance of Jesus. Also last week, as we observed, uh, after three years of ministry, three years of friendship, Jesus spends the last moments with his disciples, and yet they seem so incredibly blind to the significance of what was happening and what Jesus was teaching them. Astonishingly, as we argued last week, they were a group that argued amongst themselves. And the question that they had for each other was who was the greatest? And as I said last week, that this is quite hard for us to even begin to get our minds around. That they, at this moment, which is probably the holy of holies, that they were so self-absorbed and self-interested and self-centered. And uh, Jesus uses this spiritual blindness to teach them what greatness, true greatness, kingdom greatness is truly like. And he takes off his outer garment, places a towel around his waist, got a bowl of water, started to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. And he said to them, as I, your Lord and master, have done for you, you are to do for one another. And serving in Jesus' name is really the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Following the Last Supper, Jesus and the 11 disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. Judas had already left ahead of them earlier in the evening. They walked through the streets of Jerusalem in the stillness of the night. Across the Kidron Valley, they begin to climb to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus turns off into an olive uh, orchard named Gethsemane. And this was a, a favorite place for him and the disciples. And on the walk to this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prophesied that the disciples would in fact desert him. Peter, it always had to be Peter, Peter was the one who objected to that and said that he was prepared to die for his Lord. But Jesus tells him, that he, in effect, will deny the Lord three times 
before the night is out. We're going to return to Peter next week. But what follows in Gethsemane provides us with an insight of what it costs Jesus to go to the cross. <clears throat> William Barclay, um, in his commentary, William Barclay is a New Testament scholar, and in his commentary to, uh, the, to, of, of Matthew's Gospel, rather, he rather poignantly says, surely this is a passage which we must approach upon our knees. Here study should pass into wondering adoration. And I so agree with him in what he says there. And this morning, as we are approaching Good Friday, as we are approaching um, the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, I so agree with him that we are standing on holy ground. And as we study these events on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot in the Garden of Gethsemane, we need to humbly bow our knees and quieten our voices and prayerfully open our hearts in worship and in wondering adoration. Can we do that just now? Let's just bow our heads. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your amazing love for us. We thank you that you set your face towards the cross with us in mind. Your death was no sad end to a, dead, to a good man, nor was it merely down to the treachery of a friend turned traitor, nor was it purely to the jealousy of the religious leaders but it was because of your love for the world and for each one of us. And our prayer today, as we read together this familiar passage, is that we will have eyes to see, perhaps more clearly than ever before, how wide and long and high and deep is your great love for us all. Amen. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus urges the disciples to watch and pray. And he takes Peter, James and John, the inner three, the inner circle, a little bit further into the olive grove with him. And he opens his heart to them. And he tells them that he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And there's such an emotional intensity in the passage that Sue read to us a few moments ago. It's not easy reading. And it's not, certainly not easy preaching. Never before have the disciples observed Jesus being so emotionally distraught? They remember the time that Jesus faced that violent storm on the Sea of Galilee and he was totally composed and ruffled. His disciples were frantic. They thought that they were all going to drown, but not Jesus. Quiet, be still, he said to the wind and the waves. And they obeyed him. He was unflustered in the face of demonic opposition satanic temptation when others were frenetic and fearful he simply commanded the demons to leave and when Jesus was interrogated by the religious leaders in Jerusalem he demonstrated total composure but here in the garden there was an emotion that the disciples had not witnessed before in fact they would have been greatly distressed in what they saw in Jesus that night Jesus throwing himself to the ground, agonizing in prayer. It must have been so unnerving, so unsettling, 
so disturbing for the disciples just to see what was happening to Jesus. Something terrible was going to happen. Jesus knew it and the disciples were beginning to grasp it as well. And Jesus told Peter, James and John to stay and keep watch. And he went a little further into the olive grove and bowed his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And then he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? And then Jesus went a second time and prayed. And he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And Jesus returned to the disciples a second time and they were sleeping. So he left them and prayed the same thing a third time. I know it begs the question, doesn't it? If they were all sleeping and Jesus was, was alone, how do we know what Jesus prayed? Well, the only answer I have for that is that Jesus must have at some later date told them what he had prayed for them. But before we go any further into those words, we need to understand perhaps what Jesus meant by the word cup. May this cup be taken from me. Why did Jesus use the word cup? What was he referring to? Well, in a number of places in the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord was a symbol of God's judgment against the wicked. And when Jesus was asking uh, the Father to take this cup away, Jesus was not only referring to the physical pain of being flogged and crucified and the mental pain of being despised and rejected by his own people, but he was also speaking of the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world and experiencing God's judgment upon sin, which of course includes your sin and my sin this morning. I think for Jesus there would have been a, a natural human horror in the cross. I've been told that the crucifixion is the most torturous method of execution to ever be invented by men, where a person is um, slowly suffocated and they experience organ failure over a period of up to three days, excruciating, unbearable pain. And Jesus experienced that dread that any other person would experience. You know, sometimes we have a tendency, don't we? Just because we think that Jesus was God, that his suffering somehow wasn't as real as ours. But it was. He was completely human, as well as being completely divine. And those nails would have been as horrifying to Jesus as they are to us this morning. And the cup that Jesus was referring to was far more than physical pain and emotional pain. He experienced a God-forsakenness in bearing the weight of our sin. Stuart Townend wrote that amazing modern hymn when he writes, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
And when I was looking at that phrase this week, I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper. What was Jesus praying for at that moment? Was Jesus really praying and believing that his father would change his mind regarding the cross? Was there any real danger of that happening? Of the father somehow listening to the earnest prayer of his only begotten son and and saying, no, pull out. Putting it more bluntly than that, was the salvation of the world in potential jeopardy at that moment? Well, I don't believe that it was. The Lord's submission to his father was never in question. And I believe that that prayer that Jesus was praying to his father was, Father, is there any other way to achieve the salvation of the world? Jesus, as a Jew, as a Jewish rabbi, would have certainly known the story in Genesis, that story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham was told by God to go and sacrifice his only son. He had him tied to an altar and was about to kill him in obedience to God. And at the last moment, God changed the instructions and told him to kill a ram caught in a nearby thicket. And I just wonder if that was the the very thought, the very story that was in Jesus' mind as he was praying that prayer. Is there another way possible, like there was for Isaac? Was there another solution on this occasion too? I think perhaps just for a moment we should pause there. Not rush on. Just to remind ourselves this morning that there was no other way. There was no plan B. In the wisdom of God, the cross was the only way. Jesus acting as our substitute. The one who was the just one for unjust people. The righteous one for unrighteous people. Graham Kendrick wrote that lovely song some years ago. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice. The son of God given for me. My debt he pays and my death he dies that I might live. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, writes that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You see, becoming a Christian um, isn't essentially about becoming religious or deciding merely just to attend a, a church service or even making a decision to turn over a new leaf. Becoming a Christian is entrusting ourselves totally to God and receiving God's forgiveness, which is only possible through that event of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. There is no other way. No cross, no salvation. You see, if there was another way, don't you think for a moment that God the Father would have, not, would have allowed his son to suffer on that cross. But there is no other way. Some years ago, I remember <coughs> Martin Scorsese's blasphemous, blasphemous film, The Last Temptation of Christ. And it came to British uh, cinemas in 1988. And Christians rightly were outraged at the portrayal of Christ because the, the film depicted Christ uh, being tempted by imagining himself engaged in various sexual activities. And at the time, I was uh, serving as a part of a team in a city centre church in Cardiff. And the senior pastor there, Mike Sherwood, um, got in touch with the local papers. And he told them that he would be preaching on the last temptation of Christ on the following Sunday evening. And um, Mike, knowing that there'd be a good crowd of unchurched people attending, 
including reporters from the local press, um, especially since he was going to be speaking on this very controversial subject, the subject that everybody was talking about. And to be truthful, I think that Mike got in touch with the newspapers before he actually decided what he was going to say on the night. <laughs> and uh, we pastors, we tend to do that sort of thing on times. And as the week went on, uh, I, I was Mike's assistant. I, I, I could sense, really sense, the deep sense of strain that he was feeling as it got closer to the weekend. I was thinking rather him than me. I'm not sure if I would have actually done that before knowing what I was going to say, but I had no idea how he was going to deal with this. On the evening, he based his talk on Gethsemane. He based his talk on these words of Jesus, may this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the main point in his talk, and it was a great message, it really was. It's 30 years ago now, and I still remember it. And the main point was that the last temptation of Jesus was not some perverse sexual temptation that Scorsese's film suggested, but rather the last temptation of Jesus as he approached the cross was, are they really worth it? Are they really worth it? Meaning us. And of course we know the answer to that question. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The gospel writers tell us that while Jesus was speaking to his disciples, Judas, along with the temple guards and the Roman soldiers, came into the garden with lanterns and weapons to arrest him. And Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus responded, friend, do what you came for. In the subsequent arrest, Simon Peter, had to be him, didn't it? He took a sword out and cut off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Jesus was having none of it. He told him to put away his sword. Those that use the sword will die by the sword. And Jesus then reminded Peter that if he was minded to do so, he himself could call on 12 legions of angels. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put to my disposal 12 legions of angels? To you and me, that's 72,000 of them. The angels of heaven would come to his rescue immediately, at once. And all Jesus needed to do was to say the word. Now, Jesus might not have called on 12 legions of angels, but Luke in his gospel tells us something that Matthew, Mark, and John ignore in the retelling of their accounts. That on the night of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, one angel was sent. And this is the way that uh, Luke puts it. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Only Luke tells us about that visit of the one angel. There are another 71,999 angels waiting for their orders from high command. But one solitary angel was sent, not to save Jesus from the cross, 
but to encourage Jesus to endure it. Something quite comic, isn't there, really, about uh, Peter's brand of uh, heroism. Peter was impetuous. He suffered from a kind of foot and mouth disease. He, every time he opened his mouth, he seemed to put his foot in it. He rushed into places where angels feared to tread. He was the one who was willing to get out of the boat in the middle of the night in the Sea of Galilee and walk towards Jesus on water. And here Peter, with sword in hand, facing the temple guard and a detachment of probably 200 Roman soldiers. And what did he do? Did he cower? Did he think of surrendering? Not a chance. He rushed into the crowd of soldiers, hacking widely, trying to do as much damage as he possibly could. And as we will see next week, Peter wasn't always that courageous. But on this occasion, Malchus was the unlucky one. He didn't duck quickly enough. He lost an ear. And he was lucky that it wasn't his neck. And what happens next is quite astounding. It really is. That Jesus touches the wounded man and heals his ear. Jesus was insistent that the only blood shed that night was his own. And Luke is the only gospel writer to document this healing. The others ignore it. I wonder why that was. May it be because he was a doctor himself? But the last miracle that Jesus performed before he died is also probably the smallest of miracles. There's no way that you could compare getting a part of someone's earlobe chopped off compared with some of the other stuff that Jesus did over the years, giving sight to a man who was born blind, the healing of the ten lepers, the healing of the centurion's servant when Jesus just said the word. And that miracle of the healing of the man's ear wasn't in the same league as some of the other stuff, raising Lazarus from the grave. You see, the servant could have lived his life with his year missing. He wouldn't have been impaired really in any way. At the worst, the damage would have only been cosmetic. Now, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. It was the smallest of miracles, but maybe, just maybe, it was one of his greatest. You see, the one who taught his followers to love their enemies practiced what he preached. And he practiced it right to the end. And Jesus' last miracle was an unrequested act of kindness to an enemy. Don't you find that amazing? An unrequested act of kindness to an enemy. In these five weeks, I know Sunday mornings feel a little bit different. Because what we are doing, we are using the Bible text and we are just journeying through and reflecting essentially on the story. But I do believe that uh, this passage speaks to us in a number of ways today. It brings an encouragement. There's a challenge. And there's also a principle to live by. First of all, what the encouragement let me just put it on, on screen for you, Hebrews chapter 4, verse uh, 15 and 16. It tells us that we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 
So let us come boldly, writes the uh, writer to Hebrew, boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when, it, when we need it most. In other words, there is nothing that you can experience in your lives that Jesus does not understand. How good is that? There is nothing that you can ever, ever experience in your lives that Jesus does not understand. He has sat where we sit. He has walked our pathway. He has journeyed through this world. Every temptation, every trial, every problem, every heartache, every anxiety, every worry, he knows. And the writer to Hebrews encourages us that when we come to him, we will find mercy and grace to help us when we need it most. How good is that? How good is that? I said there was an encouragement. There was also a challenge. And Gethsemane shows us the true cost of God's love. And this passage that we've looked at today, I think, is one of the most powerful and awesome examples of how much it costs the Lord Jesus to achieve our salvation. And I think it's good for us to take time out to reflect upon his great love for us. As Christians, we can sometimes talk so flippantly about the cross and sing songs so superficially. But the big challenge here is Gethsemane is a challenge of how we should respond to the love of God. You see, if it costs Jesus so much, what is our response? It was Isaac Watts many years ago who wrote that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the final and fourth, fourth and final verse of that. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all. So there's an encouragement, but there's also a challenge. But also, there's a life principle here in Gethsemane. And that life principle, it's a principle that God gives us to live by day by day. And it's really found in the words of Jesus when he said, Not my will, but your will be done. Isn't it easy to say that? It just runs off our lips so easily. But let us this week and throughout our lives make that our goal and our aim not my will but your will be done let's prioritize Jesus let's choose obedience let us make his will his cause his kingdom our main goal and as we live our lives to this Jesus promises that we will gain life in all of its fullness I want to finish with a prayer and it's not my own prayer uh, I don't normally read other people's prayers, but I would like this morning. It's a, a, a prayer that I've adapted from a book by the name, um, a book called Moments with a Saviour, written by Ken Geyer. And I just want to pray this prayer this morning because I felt that it so sums up all that was happening there in Gethsemane. And as I pray it, you say a quiet amen as well to those words. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for all you gave on the night of your betrayal. 
To your father, you gave your obedience. To your disciples, you gave a plea for their escape. To your betrayer, you gave a kind word, friend. To your enemy, you gave healing. To your captors, you gave your own life. Lord, grant us the grace to confront life the way you did at Gethsemane. When someone betrays us, grant us forgiving hearts that we would offer a kind word in exchange for a deceitful kiss. When danger surrounds us, grant us such faithfulness for our friends that we would think of their welfare before our own. And when an army of opposition mounts against us, grant us the courage to stand alone. Thank you, Lord, for something as small as a servant's ear was not overlooked on your way to redeeming the world. Thank you for all the lessons that small act of kindness teaches us. And help us to show kindness to others, even to our enemies, granting that our small acts of kindness would bring healing to their lives. Amen. And Jesus, Amen. and we pray together. Amen.